You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Welcome to the Lead to Soar podcast. I am joined today by author Bonnie Marcus. She wrote two books, The Politics of Promotion, which we discussed on a previous episode, and Not Done Yet, How Women Over 50 Regain Their Confidence and Claim Workplace Power. That's what we're here to talk about today. So Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, so I want to kick us off with... A quote from your book, we need to adopt a badass winning attitude and do it ASAP before we fall victim to continued age and gender discrimination. We need to regain our confidence and power to claim our rightful place in the world. I love these words, and I think this speaks to the call to action and inspiration from your book, but talk to us high level here. Who is this book for? And I want to ask this a real specific way. Why did you have to write this book? (laughs) Who is the book for? It's actually for all professional women. My research has shown, and um, I also read research from Harvard Business Review last week that validated all of my research, which shows that women face ageism at every stage of their careers. And um, in my own research, 77% of women under 35 experienced ageism, 88% at the other end of the spectrum, like over 54. But even when women are considered, you know, at their prime around 40, there's the potential of the motherhood penalty, losing their leadership status. And so um, women in that category, still 60% experienced ageism and gendered ageism, I should say. So the book is primarily for 50, but in reality, it's like a wake-up call now for professional women that you need to be proactive, that, yeah, you might have entered the workplace and said, Oh, yeah, now I see, you know, there is gender bias and it is difficult. But as we show visible signs of aging, we're really hit head on with that double whammy, the intersectionality of gender bias and ageism. I wonder if you could describe for our listeners a little bit about how does gendered ageism look different than simply ageism? Well, it is the combination of gender bias along with ageism, and it hits women differently. Women experience this differently than men, and that primarily is because of the emphasis on on what we call lookism, and it's so important in our culture, which is very youth-oriented and very focused on how people look, that as women show signs of aging, they are not only viewed as too old, et cetera, or irrelevant. Research shows they're also viewed as less competent. Now, do men experience ageism as well? Yes, but they do it much later than women. 
And they're not under that microscope of how do you look? And a lot of the women that I interviewed for this book felt terrible pressure to look young, to keep their job. And that doesn't even address the women who wanted a new job or who were terminated and wanted to get rehired. Should I go gray? Do I get an eye lift or plastic surgery or Botox or, you know, whatever that men don't have that kind of pressure and they're viewed as, as having more value. Research actually validates that where women are viewed as less valuable, less relevant as we show signs of aging, men are viewed as more. Uh, it's like they're seasoned now. The silver fox, right? Yes. Yes. In fact, I worked with a man whom the team had given him that as a, as a nickname. So that's, that's interesting. Before we go on, I want to go back to the motherhood penalty. Could you just describe that very quickly? When women choose to become a parent, the way the current work situation is, very few companies offer the flexibility that women would like. Now, I think that's changing, but really it's a difficult choice for women because if they want to have children and they want to be able to, to not only just take their parental leave, but to perhaps go part-time or opt out for a while, they often lose their leadership status. So say you're a high potential and you're on the track, right? For a leadership position and you're 30 some odd years old, you decide you want to have children. There's a bias in the workplace that now you're not as committed to your work, that now you're not going to be as available to do your job and, you know, there's a story of a, of a woman that I interviewed in the book who worked for one of the top five consulting firms, and you know how competitive they are. And she was on, on track to become a partner, and she took her maternity leave. She just took three months. She had everything in order to come back. Somebody was going to take care of her child. She was all set. And she came back, and she found that things were different. All of a sudden, she wasn't given the same clients. She wasn't asked to travel anymore. Now, she had the savvy to go to her HR manager and say, what, you know, what's going on? And the HR person said, well, you know, we assumed you didn't want to spend that much time traveling or having a high profile client anymore, even though she had put all this in place. So there's a lot of bias about what would happen once a woman becomes a parent and what kind of commitment she has. The other part of this, which we talked before we hit the record button, is that say women go part-time or say that they opt out when they decide to have children and, and then they do get back into the workplace, very often their salary suffers. And so that has long-term effects on women's overall income and, in fact, ability to uh, have the funds to retire at some point, because it's really hard 
to get back at the level where you were. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just really drive this point home because this is a, a value that you have, that we have, that we really want our listeners to get. There is a gender pay gap. And when it is exacerbated because of this motherhood penalty that you just discussed, or perhaps you have another identity that compounds this pay problem and it gets can get worse as you age, this means that women have a lot less money on average when they get to their retirement years compared to men. And on average, women live longer than men, meaning that really women need more of a buffer in their retirement accounts to sustain them. I simply cannot overemphasize this enough. We want to see you, dear listeners out there, to make it a priority to earn as much as you can and to get financially savvy with your own personal income. So there's something that men do much more proactively than women. We don't pay much attention to our retirement plan until perhaps it's kind of late and we get to be 60 or 65, realize we don't have enough to retire. And it's like, you know, wow, (laughs) now what do I do? Because I see older workers are being pushed out in my workplace. I hear stories from other women in my age category that they're having trouble getting hired. And when they do get hired, it's for a fraction of what they were working for before. So, you know, one of the big messages in this book is to be proactive, to be proactive about your career, about your ambition to to be successful and your retirement. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're going to get into a few of the pieces of advice that you offer in the book. There's a lot of different things in here that the readers can take action on, which I love. Let's start with mindset. So here towards the beginning of the book, you've got a passage that says, the negative voices in your head have an opposite effect. I'm sure you hear the same voices many of us hear. I'm not smart enough, not pretty enough. I'll never be successful. I'm afraid people won't like me if they really know me. I'm afraid my ideas aren't worth sharing. My colleagues will laugh at my ideas and ridicule me. Any of this sound familiar? Just talk to us a little bit about why getting control of our mindset and these voices is so important, especially in this context. Well, yeah, in this context, especially, but And there's certainly a lot that's been written about limiting beliefs about the negative mindset. And when we compare ourselves to others, instead of focusing on the value and who we are, we essentially, Mel, give our power away. All of our energy goes to, oh, look what that person did on Instagram today, or look at what they, they got a promotion and I didn't. And, you know, and so we're so externally focused and caught up in all this comparison and negative beliefs that it robs us of, of the energy. And what, you know, the, a big thing that I really want to talk about is how 
it paralyzes you. You know, you become a victim to it and you don't realize. So when you are a victim, you do give your power away. In this context, the power of internalizing our society's ageist beliefs sabotages us in our career. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And a lot of these beliefs that we have and fears and assumptions become self-fulfilling prophecies. So, and in the book, I address a few of them, but say, you know, you feel you're too old to get promoted. Then if you believe you're too old to get promoted, you're not going to do what it takes to get promoted. You're going to pull yourself back. You're not going to volunteer for special assignments. You're not going to be visible. You're not going to share your opinions and raise your hand. And then when it comes to, well, who should get this promotion? You're off the radar because you removed yourself from, or I'm too old to compete. You removed yourself from the competition and, and people either think you're not invested or perhaps they believe that you are too old and in fact, irrelevant. We really need to take a good hard look at some of the beliefs that we have and the power they have over us. Let me make this point. They're never going to go all the way away. Hmm. The point is, how much energy are you giving them? And are you giving so much energy that, in fact, it's sabotaging your success? Absolutely. I feel like it's important to get a reminder. And so let us remind you today that you can make a choice to start telling yourself something different. You can change the voice inside your head. We know that the negative will never entirely go away, but we do have the ability to intervene. And, you know, Mel, there's also research. Becca Levy out of Yale University has done research about how this affects our longevity, our long-term health. I mean, If we can move more toward the positive, we can live up to seven years longer. Yep. Now, if we believe that we're going to become senile or lose all of our cognitive abilities, that also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's a link, and you can read about it in the book or her book, about the link to Alzheimer's and how our beliefs have a lot of power over whether or not we develop this disease, even more so than some of the genetic coding we have. Yeah. And I was doing some reading because I've been taking on some things associated with elder care. And so I've been doing some reading on aging separate from this. And I was really delighted to learn that the percent of the population that actually gets something like Alzheimer's or becomes senile or whatever is not that big. It's not the majority of people. That's not the way most people end up aging. And it's just counter to how aging is portrayed in popular media and whatnot. So uh, several of the sort of assumptions and fears that you address here, you mentioned, I'm, I'm too old to get promoted, too old to compete. You talk about this idea of I'm irrelevant or I'm powerless over my present and future. I'll never get another job and I'm terrified of aging. I wonder if you have any story that you might want to share about helping someone who was 
holding on to a belief like one of these and how they moved past it? Yeah, a client that I had um, who reached out to me because she had been out of a job for a while. She was over 50. And she talked about the fact that she would send out resumes. I mean, you know, she was kind of doing the, the run of the mill things. And every time I made a suggestion about, well, building your network or reaching out to people that you worked with before or any kind of coaching advice that I would give her so that she would become more visible, she rejected and she wouldn't do. And it turned out that, I mean, her underlying belief was that she would never get a job. And because she believes she would never get a job, she wasn't doing what she needed to do to get a job. So uncovering that through coaching was huge. Wow, that's some big self-sabotage. We do it though, Mel, we do it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've covered some on the mindset and assumptions type of section. Talk to us about what does it look like to discuss ageism and sexism with your boss? Depending on the relationship you have with your boss, it can be pretty scary. You know, a lot of women do not want to call attention to the fact that they are aging. And so they stay silent about this. And uh, my research also showed that many women who experienced gendered ageism did not feel comfortable talking about it with their boss or with HR. And if they did talk about it with them, their dissatisfaction rate was sky high, which just calls for the fact that we need more awareness and education in this. But depending on the relationship that you have with, with your boss would probably dictate the way that you handle it. If in fact it was your boss who made a comment or treated you in a way where you felt it was ageist and you have a decent relationship with your boss and, and they're a good person who means well, having that conversation is really important because first of all, you want to build awareness. You want to help educate. And a lot of people, I believe, make ageist comments and make ageist assumptions just because that's the way our society, they don't even think about it. So when you have a conversation with them and kind of call it out and say, you know, that comment, that comment you made about, you know, made me feel X, Y, Z helps to bring more awareness overall. So in the book, I mean, I talk about different scenarios about if it's with your manager and you have a good relationship, if it's your manager and you don't, if somebody just said something in a group and it was a joke and everybody laughed and how, how you might address this, because I believe that it's important to address it. But number one, you don't want to get fired. And number two, you want to do it in a way that doesn't put people necessarily on the defensive. You know, this is where I say you need some political savvy in how you talk about it. And a lot of companies have ERGs now. So maybe this is an opportunity to 
bring this up in your employee resource group. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to bring in somebody to, to talk about age discrimination for either that group or for the larger group so that people are more aware of what that looks like. Because there's a lot of focus on it now, but I think a lot of people think, oh, that's nursing homes or, you know, there's still people out there who don't get how this plays out in the workplace. I just love that suggestion of taking a really proactive step, something like bringing someone in, a professional in to have a discussion on this topic. And let's just acknowledge that when we have a fear response that's been triggered. So in this case, if we are in a workplace where we see that people are being pushed out, we're afraid for our job, that can affect deeply how we show up in our day-to-day life and work. And in your book, you've got this chapter titled Be Visible. And there are some other great suggestions in here. I'll just read a few of them. So volunteer for company-wide social activities, arrange outings with colleagues, join an existing women's leadership group, initiate a new leadership group, maybe to this discussion, initiating a over 50 ERG. There are proactive steps that women can take So maybe just build on this a bit, this chapter on be visible. Why does being visible matter? And what else would you speak to as far as being proactive? One point I just want to make to our previous comments were that about a month or so ago, I interviewed the chief diversity officer at Philip Morris International. Their headquarters is in in Germany. And she was over 50 when she took her job and totally unaware that, you know, she said, I told people I I was a grandmother and this and that and the other thing. And I didn't experience anything, but she started to hear anecdotal stories from women in this age group where they were experiencing ageist comments or being subjected to different jokes and stuff so that they did form an ERG on this, and they're doing some data research, you know, within the the company, it's a large global company, to figure out how best to address it based on what women are experiencing. But that goes back to my point about talking about it, because here's the chief diversity officer, she's in this age group herself, and she's in her little bubble. And it isn't until women started to talk about this and speak up a little bit that she realized this is something that we really need to focus on. In terms of being visible, there is a tendency as women age and start to show signs of aging to pull back and not be visible. And that's one of the the ways that we can certainly sabotage ourselves because then we are viewed as irrelevant. Then we are viewed as not that invested or committed to our careers and not having the value that perhaps other people do. And it's just too easy to push women over 50 off the radar. So one of my proactive messages is to create your own visibility plan. Be proactive. It's like, if you were in sales, what's your sales plan? 
and this is you, right? So what are some of the things given your, and I did some generic things, but I'm also suggesting in your workplace, think about it. What are some of the ways that you could be more visible in this particular workplace? Does your company have a certain mission or objectives? And can you get involved in some kind of initiative for social good? What are they doing in the community? Can you start something? Think about what's important in your company and uh, the best way to become involved. And you can even look around and say, oh, wow, that person is like everywhere. Well, what are they doing? And is there something of interest that that person's doing that you could also do? Some of the suggestions are to mentor, to have cross-generational conversations or networking, or if your company doesn't have it, facilitate it. Because then we're showing that we're open to learning. You know, we're not stuck in our age category, you know, these age categories really isolate us from the rest of the workplace. And we have so much to learn from other generations. And we just look like we're more invested when we show up as being open to having these conversations across the company and being open to learning from others as well as to sharing our wisdom and experience. Yes, absolutely. And so I love it when activities for work serve multiple purposes, like when you're doing something and it can have payback for you in different areas. So on a a recent episode that Michelle and I recorded, we talked about the importance of succession planning. And when you're in middle management, especially part of this is mentoring people behind you so that as you come up, there's someone that can take your place next year. There's someone that is behind them like three or four years later. And that savviness for the business, that's being strategic for the business in this case also overlaps with what you've described for mentoring other people and being visible, adding this to your visibility plan. And supporting other women. Yes. We talk about how women in leadership positions don't bring other women up. And we, what happens? The pipeline kind of empties out after mid-level management, right? So that's really important to do for the company. And you have a lot to gain from it as well. Yes, absolutely. A moment ago, when you were talking about addressing ageist comments and that importance, you said the phrase that always perks me up, which is political savvy, right? Having political savvy and how you handle a situation. And you've got indeed a chapter, Be Politically Savvy. So like we discussed on the previous episode together that your research found that women often have this negative aversion to the idea of workplace politics and whatnot. Would it be okay with you if I read some of the the questions from this chapter? Sure, of course. Okay. So I love these questions because they speak to political savvy. And at the same time, if you're not able to answer these questions 
when you hear them, it's probably an indicator that you have some work to do. So some of the questions in here are, who has power and influence over your career? How are decisions about promoting and firing made? Who decides? What's the culture like? Is it collaborative, hierarchical, formal, casual, toxic, youthful, innovative, stifling, or prone to status quo thinking? What type of behavior is acceptable and approved? How do you fit into this culture? So all of these questions, and there's more in the chapter, have to do with really being aware of how people interact in this organization and power structures. Tell us a little bit about political savvy for women over 50. Well, as you know, because I wrote The Politics of Promotion, (laughs) I am an advocate for being politically savvy at every stage of the career. But it, it really speaks, Mel, to to what I talk about, which is to be proactive and pay attention. Because we still believe that if we work really hard, harder than anybody else, and we spend long hours doing our work and and our effort is is off the charts, that that's going to count for something. And I'm not saying that it doesn't, and it really depends on your work environment. But the point is that if we believe that and we're not paying attention to the culture and everything that's going on, we're going to be perhaps blindsided. And it's not always company-wide. It could also be by department. You know, you move to a different department. They're all new politics and you answer those questions differently. But my point is you really need to pay attention. and building allies and champions, answering that question about power and influence, who has the power and influence over your career, and what's your relationship like with them? Are you connected? So building that whole web of influence so that you're not reliant on, say, just your manager knows your work and your value, but there are a lot of people who can raise their hand and advocate for you when you're not in the room or when your manager leaves and is being replaced. You want people in your organization to know your value and what you contribute. And if you think that it's just going to be that you work hard and you do good work, unfortunately, that, you know, it's not a meritocracy. It becomes really relevant when we are aware of the effect of gendered ageism on women at a certain point in their career. Like I said, like over 54, 88% of women were experiencing it. And in many cases of the women I interviewed, they just noticed this too late. You know, they were already being pushed out instead of saying, okay, what can I do here to show to the right people, and again, that can change depending on where you are in the workplace, but people who have influence that I am invested in my career, that I bring a lot of value, wisdom, experience, and that I'm not done yet. I'm going to open up a bit of 
a sticky topic, one that I feel is is challenging. So in the book, you do address this fear or this thought that women can have that I'm no longer attractive. And you write some in the book about appearance and how we choose to take care of ourselves. So I find this a sticky or tricky topic to address because let me share just a little story to kind of illustrate that. I went to a conference once that was for professional women. And one of the things that they put in our swag bag was some cosmetics. They put some mascara in the bag. Every conference. Look at the vendors. So we don't do that at, at Lead to Soar, but it opened up a conversation because I brought this home and I, I brought it to a friend of mine who happens to be a scientist as her profession. And I was asking her, you know, what do you think about this? And we didn't come to a satisfactory conclusion as to what to do because as women who are seeking to empower and advance other women, I don't want to send the message to you that, hey, the underlying theme here is change your appearance. But at the same time, I think we can all acknowledge as adults that when we do things to take care of ourselves, like our personal health and our skin, washing our face, you know, basic things, when we do those things and have it in our mindset that we're taking care of ourselves, I think we are able to show up with more confidence, confidence, self-respect, et cetera. So I wonder if you might want to talk to us a little bit about your ideas here around speaking with women about appearance in, in this context. And let me also just say to listeners here that I have myself had many of these fears that that you've described in the book, Bonnie, because I have seen women who are in an older demographic treated differently. I completely worry about that for myself, but also the other women around me and how that's going to affect their career. So help us understand how you've thought about it, especially as you've done this research and written this book. Well, your fears are very common. And, you know, in the book, there are stories of women who had panic attacks at three o'clock in the morning, you know, oh my God, um, I'm 62 years old and I'm a VP in the fashion industry. And what if I lose my job? So I don't tell anybody my age. A woman in commercial real estate who said she, she decided to have eye lift surgery and that gave her another 10 years, she felt, in her, her career. So, you know, I am ambivalent about it myself in that I'm trying to help women to have the savvy to be successful. And part of that is looking around and seeing, well, which women are making it to the top and what are they doing to get to the top? And it's not necessarily their work or their clients. It might be how do they show up in meetings? Are they professional? Are they polished? You know, what do they wear? How do they speak? 
who were they had who do they have relationships with it's the whole thing you know years ago one of the large financial institutions hired me to coach a high potential woman she was young she was uh probably mid 30s at the time when i did feedback interviews about how they perceived her and how they perceived her as a leader most of the people said she looks too young she looks young she dresses too young she talks with uh you know a question at the end huh you know kind of thing and we may hate it but in fact she changed her hair she had a more sophisticated wardrobe she is at such a high level position in that bank now globally i think she's gotten like four promotions since i i worked with her so that's part of the political like looking at the reality it's pretty easy to get a haircut and buy a different suit and in the book i talk about well it's casual friday maybe you don't want to show up in ripped jeans you know maybe you really want to pay attention to how you look in terms of professionalism you may think oh i show up in ripped jeans that shows i'm kind of young and hip and and whatever but you know you're not young and hip so own who you are and show up as somebody who is professional and proud of who they are and owning who they are it's a balance between the pressure that we feel from society our insecurity about our looks and some of the things that women will do to stay marketable and i of course i will never have any judgment it's like if somebody wants to get a facelift or they that makes you know how they're dealing with aging i'm not going to say that's wrong yeah absolutely the bottom line is at the end of the day you you take care of mm-hmm. yourself you show up as professional and you show up as somebody who other people respect that starts with respecting mm. yourself and doing whatever it takes to do that i like that okay maybe the last question this has been such a great conversation so when we talk about this i like that you said that really this book is for all women and so i'd like it if we could maybe wrap this up around women being allies for one another across generations what do you want to say about that so maybe speaking to women over 50 and women under 50 what does it mean to show up for one another across generations you know the first word that comes to my mind is respect that we should not be held to these different categories here's a gen z here's a boomer here's a those kinds of categories age categories which i wish we'd get rid of hold us back from connecting with other women in different age categories and there's kind of a stigma that ends up being oh we make assumptions that a boomer is this and that gen z is this and and then um it puts up these barriers i think the overall message is to respect each other respect one another regardless of your age because we all have something to contribute 
we all have different experiences that are valuable and we can learn from each other. So I think respecting, being open to learning from each other, being open to helping each other is really important. And and to kind of let go of this idea of, you know, scarcity, like that um, there's only one position and I can't help another woman because, you know, then I'm not going to get promoted. I mean, we have we have these fears about the fact that there aren't enough opportunities for women. So we can't really help support other women. And I, you know, I just think the opposite is true. And the more we do this, the more opportunities will develop over time. Yeah, agree. And some of the best sort of things that I've seen on that front are in many companies now, there's not that sort of direct line stepwise up and down. New positions get created all the time. And that that's sort of a byproduct of how quickly technology is changing and, and needs are changing and for businesses to meet those those shifting needs. So there is lots of opportunity. And I've worked with a lot of clients to create their own position. Yeah, exactly. I've been stuck in as a director for XYZ and I want to move up to be a VP. Well, is there a slot? Well, no. Well, maybe we can create a business case. Maybe we can figure out how that would benefit the company to have somebody doing kind of different things, expanding your responsibilities. So that's another way I like to help my clients be proactive is figure out a way that you can add more value in an expanded role. Okay. This has been a great discussion. Thank you for joining us yet again, Bonnie. Really appreciate it. Bonnie Marcus, author of The Politics of Promotion and Not Done Yet. Bonnie, where can people find you? My website is bonniemarcusleadership.com. And I'm very active on LinkedIn and other social media. You can find, find all that on my website. Perfect. Thank you. So that's bonniemarcusleadership.com. We'll add that link to the show notes. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.